SOAS Radio. Welcome to The World Made Easy, the podcast that explains current events in international relations and development. For this episode, I sat down with Georgie Wallace and Alex Corston Ronaldson, who are campaigners with the Youth Stop AIDS movement, which is a youth-led movement campaigning for a world without AIDS. Their network of young people across the UK speak out, take creative action, and engage those in power to ensure that governments, global institutions, and corporations are committed to ending AIDS by 2030. We discussed the HIV AIDS pandemic, global health inequalities, and what governments need to do to end HIV AIDS by 2030. Generally, people think of the HIV AIDS crisis as something from the 70s, not something that people would necessarily talk about today. So why is it still important to raise awareness of it? And what are some of the global background to the current crisis? It's an, it's an interesting concept, this idea of obviously HIV AIDS being an sort of 70s, 80s problem, because back then, obviously, that when, when it was first discovered, you know, it was called, originally called GRID, which was gay-related immune disease. They thought it was a gay cancer. All these different things that, that, that happened back then. And actually, it took a long time even for world leaders to use the term AIDS. I think it took about five years for Margaret Thatcher and for Ronald Reagan to even say the words, let alone help people. And so back then, obviously, it was a death sentence. There was so much research going on, but not enough. And it took a long time, a lot of activists, a long time to get it to, to a place where research was being done and things were being done. Fast forward 30 odd years, where we are now is in a place where we have the science and we know how to suppress the virus now. So I'm HIV positive and I'm what's known as undetectable, which, which means that I have an undetectable viral load. The virus is so suppressed in my system that you can't detect it. And what that means is that I can't transmit the virus and I take three pills a day and that's my life. I'm all good. But that's not the same for everyone. Um, because I've got access to treatment because I live in the UK uh, and I have the, there's one thing called the NHS. Um, we have massive inequalities in countries where there is a private healthcare system. Um, and therefore the access to the drugs that I take, is, is, you know, these drugs are expensive. Uh, pharma companies charge a lot of money for these drugs. And so there are countries, yep, where there's health inequalities. And then we've got the global south. And where obviously an area that's most effective uh, is sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and so we're in a position where we have the science and I'm going to live a long, healthy life because um, I have access to the treatment and, I, and I'm taking my medication and I have really good health care. But someone the same age as me who lives in, Malawi, for example, um, might not have access to the same, well, they don't have access to the same treatment as I do, and, and, which is why it is still the second biggest killer of young people worldwide. Uh, and it's why a, a million people a year still die of AIDS-related illnesses. And that, to me, is just mind-blowing. Yeah, it's, it's really big numbers. And what I think is crazy as well, like even here in the UK, is that hasn't there only ever been like one government campaign about HIV and AIDS? And that was the, the Tombstone campaign yeah. from the 80s. So still mm. now people are so have still think of that campaign for a lot of people because there hasn't been a government campaign since. It's uh, public communications. Uh, that, the, the, I read recently the, the other day, actually, that was the first big government public health communications campaign, which is great. But what they did, it did the job back in the 80s. It sent out leaflets yeah. with two things on and boom, AIDS equals death. And yeah, you're right. Nothing's been done since. Yeah. So people still think of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got you've got HIV Prevention England and a couple of the other organisations, Terence Higgins Trust and some wonderful organisations who are doing a lot of work, but they don't have the money to run a TV campaign to tell everybody. Yeah, that's okay. exactly. 
And, and you know, I, I still, when I disclose my status to people, they're sort of like, oh my God, you're going to die. And it's like, no, I'm fine. <laughs> so I guess the, the, the two kind of issues you've brought up is that we live in a life monopoly when it comes to HIV AIDS, basically, depending on where you are, will affect whether you can access treatment. And there's still massive misconceptions about what it means to be HIV positive. So how does this kind of influence your It Ain't Over campaign? What's that all about? What does that try to achieve? So our It Ain't Over campaign is, is all about basically reprioritizing HIV. It's all based around the working towards the Sustainable Development Goal 3, which is to end AIDS by 2030. Um, so we've got a few kind of key aims at Youth Stop AIDS, which is zero age-related deaths, zero new HIV infections, uh, zero uh, stigma surrounding HIV. Um, and that's pretty much where our, our It Ain't Over campaign comes from. It's yeah, all about reprioritizing HIV, getting the government to, to reconsider and getting it back on the agenda, getting everyone to think about it again, to reduce the stigma around it and Get people talking about it. Yeah, it's 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 so important, especially when you've got. Um, so originally, we were really worried because they moved. They had an AIDS HIV AIDS task force in the Department for International Development, and then it got swallowed into uh, reproductive health more widely within DFID. And now DFID has been sucked up by the the front office. And so we're in a position where we were worried about the reprioritization of, um, of it on the global agenda for international development. And so slowly it's been shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And we were one of the biggest funders of, of, of global aid when it came to, to supporting HIV, malaria and TB. And, and that's slipping very quickly. And so it's so important for us at USTOP AIDS to keep keep it at the top of the agenda because there is a global goal to end AIDS by 2030 and that was always going to be a tough target it was always going to be hard but we're slipping away from it now and uh, I, we're doing a lot of work around uh, the impact of COVID on this as well and people living with, with HIV and uh, young people living with HIV and COVID and also then this idea of sort of reprioritization of global health um, support towards COVID away from HIV AIDS it's quite a scary concept really. You mentioned the big merger of DFID and the FCO and a lot of people are worried that many aid campaigns will be sidelined or pushed yeah. aside uh, in favour of government agenda. Is this a concern amongst HIV activism? Oh, my God, yes. Oh, my God, yes. Uh, big, huge concern. And, um, you know, we, we've always had a really great relationship with the Department for International Development, and there's a lot of amazing in there. But basically, the Department of International Development has come and gone over the decades. Um, and, you know, uh, t- what will happen is the Labour government will bring it in, and then the Tory government will get rid of it. The Labour government will bring it in, and then the Tory government will get rid of it again. And so, you know, within Youth Stop AIDS and, and the HIV AIDS, you know, campaigning sector when it comes to international development, we've known, we've kind of expected this for a while, but we've been trying to keep the pressure on to not let it happen. Because we are a global leader when it comes to aid. And so, let's be honest, this government doesn't exactly have a very strong internationally focused, um, supportive agenda that's based on humanism rather than in, than personal, well, uh, personal interest and rich people being richer. And so, I mean, hey, with that track record, we're we're worried. Wouldn't you say, Georgie? Yeah, 100%. It's just one of those we've got to see what happens. And we did as much as we could in terms of campaigning and and making the government realise that we we wanted to keep them separate with the unfortunate inevitable to happen. I was reading about You Stop AIDS and you formed in 2003 out of anger at the lack of political and financial support for the AIDS response, which I guess is probably what you're worried about with the DFID FCO merger. So what are governments failing to do in response to the crisis? And 
in response to that, how are you empowering young people to be skilled and effective HIV and AIDS campaigners? So in terms of the two sort of big questions you've sort of asked there, the first around what are government's not doing, we could do a probably a 14 hour podcast just on that. But, um, you know, in the UK, we are in a wonderful position. So London is the first the first city in the world to reach the goal of, of 1990. So 90% of, the, of people tested, 90% of those on treatment and 90% of those undetectable. So London was the first city in the world to get to that point. That's incredible. Why aren't we sharing that? <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that at all. Yeah, yeah. So th- there was a scheme that was set up a couple of years ago called the Fast Track Cities Scheme. And London was uh, sort of the pioneer of that. And yeah, so London, London's good. <laughs> um, I think the problem is, that, you know, in the UK is that I live outside of London now. I'm, I'm, I left London last year after a decade of trying to make it work. And then um, I've, I've left and I live in this sleepy city called Norwich. Uh, access to support and treatment is so different outside of London. Uh, it's crazy. And so even within the UK context, we are a global leader um, when it comes to um, healthcare. I mean, everyone knows the NHS. I was in San Francisco recently. And, and oh my God, you guys have free healthcare. It's so amazing. And like, I was speaking to nurses and they were just like, oh my God, I want to move to Britain. And I was like, yeah, you don't. And so what we're not doing is we're not sharing that. We're not leading when it comes to aid. We're not sharing, well, you know, there are those of us on a sort of micro level who are sharing best practice. But this success of London to get to 1990, we should be leading that charge around the world with this. We need to be leading on aid when it comes to the fact that lots of countries around the world follow us when it comes to the amount we're, we're adding to different funds, etc. So the global fund. And then when it comes to best practice, we are a global leader in healthcare. And, you know, that, you know, when it comes to HIV AIDS, the fact is that, you know, London being the first country to get to 1990, why aren't we sharing that, that why aren't we leading the way and actually being the being the country that could lead the way to end AIDS by 2030? I mean, I think part of what is so incredible about You Stop AIDS and why I was instantly drawn to the network and the campaigning that we do is that all of the young people that we work with is <laughs> are so incredibly passionate. And I think that's that's how we how we empower young people is that we all know that what we're campaigning on is is super, super important and we're all really passionate about it. Young people are like still disproportionately affected by by HIV. I think we mentioned it at the start about the statistics that age-related illnesses are still the second leading cause of death among young people like worldwide. So we really, really are disproportionately affected and it's so important for young people's voices to be heard. I think not just in the in the response to HIV and AIDS. I mean, myself and Alex both work with, with young people in our in our careers, I think. So we're both super passionate about the fact that young people have huge voices. You know, we really can make a huge difference in the world because we're the, we're the next generation of, of leaders. And that's what we're kind of trying to build at Eastop Aids here, be it individual campaigners or or groups We've created a network and a support system of, of young people that are so passionate about this. And it's so incredible. I think often in campaigning and activism, especially if you're not in university or you're an individual campaigner, you can you can feel like you're kind of fighting a, a battle on your own and you're not getting anywhere. And it's so hard in, in global health. I don't know if you, you feel this as well sometimes, Alex, if you're, mm-hmm. especially now you've, you've left London and you're campaigning on your own. And then you come mm-hmm. together as a network 
and you just feel so empowered to to leave those Zoom calls or those meetings in person when we can have them. You feel so empowered that we can we can really make a huge difference. I think it's great to see a charity formed by young people responding to issues that affect young people. Mm-hmm. That, that is very encouraging and empowering in itself. I was just going to add to that that you know, so we we, we run a number of key events every year, and probably the. I, I'm sure you agree with. So we, we run the Youth Stop AIDS Speaker Tour, um, which is how I got involved. Um, and that we, we go around. I first came to a speaker tour. <laughs> yeah. I mean, speaker tour is awesome. Um, but speaker tour is yeah. basically a country with a group of, um, of people living with uh, young people living with HIV and telling stories and getting people to drive out, you know, to drive activism. And it's just the most inspirational thing ever. But for me, having been a speaker to then come to what we call the big weekend, and the big weekend is where we get all of our campaigners. This was before COVID. We get all of our campaigners from across the country together, and, you know, subsidize their travel, get everyone, you know, and subsidize their, their, their accommodation, uh, either sort of Newcastle or Brighton or wherever. And oh my God, is it the most inspirational two days you could ever possibly have? Because, you know, as you say, that one person campaigning their own on their own in Norwich suddenly is surrounded by 40, 50, 60 people who are all doing the same thing as you in different cities. And it's just the most inspirational, engaging and fun weekend. And, and that's the moment where you really see the power of the network. And then it goes back out. We go back out into the to universities and cities around the country and drive forward that change because, you know, who else is going to do it apart from us? We mentioned before how a lot of HIV AIDS related issues is basically a a life lottery, but where you are and who you are and what privilege you have. Uh, And one issue with that is the access to medicine. What influences people's ability to access medicine? Things like health policy and trade negotiations, people kind of bandy these terms around, but how do they actually prevent people from accessing medicine? So basically it's something that, I mean, I've been reading about and trying to get my head around for quite a few years and still something that I find quite complicated. So Alex, feel free to <laughs> jump in at any point if <laughs> if we all get a bit lost because it can get a bit confusing. Mm. But basically, in, in very simple terms, what happens is a pharmaceutical company or a, a university or for us here in the, in the UK with NHS uh, research medication, create a, a drug and then a pharmaceutical company can buy it and they can patent it. This patent is on drugs for 20 years, which means that no one else around the world can replicate that drug. You're the only person that has access to it. So what happens is that means that pharmaceutical companies can put the prices really, really really high. It's called TRIPS, um, which is trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. So these patents basically, yeah, basically mean that no other companies around the world can replicate and create like generic versions of it, meaning that it's really, really expensive for people to have access to those medications. Another thing that's really bad that happens with this is that here in the UK, what happens is the NHS does all the research. So we obviously pay our pay money towards the NHS. The NHS does research, as do universities do research towards this medication. Pharmaceutical companies buy that and then put the prices really hard. So we pay again. So we're paying twice for the medication that has originally been researched by the NHS. So the taxpayer is paying twice to access yeah. the medications they need. Yeah, and then some. I mean, when you think about the fact that some of these drugs, the cost of production and the cost of R and D, that we, you know, we've footed the bill for the research and development of it, and then mm-hmm. they, they then claim that the drug needs to be put so high because of the amount of time and money that was spent on the R and D, and then you're like, hang on, wait, we paid for that, and then they whack some of these drugs through the roof. You know, we're talking, so for example, Truvada, which is the original um, uh medication when. Um, 
you know, when you buy Truvada from Gilead, the NHS were buying it at £400 a month per person. We're now in a position where we have generic emtricitabine. I can't say the full drug name. Uh, you know, we're now, we're, you know, the NHS is now buying that for £10 a, a month. And that's the kind of levels between um, sort of pay, patented drugs, uh, as already talked about, and then when it moves into generic. Now, one of the other things that's really crazy around um, this idea of a patent versus generic, so branded versus generic drugs, is that governments, there is a, a failsafe that governments have, which basically says, you're charging us way too much. There is a public requirement for this medication because of a pandemic, for example, and therefore we are going to force you or we are we have the right to force you to pay less. The governments don't use this policy mm-hmm. because the problem is, is that they're, they're, they're so under the, under the pharmaceutical company's thumbs that they don't enact this policy. So we could stop this from happening. Governments have the ability to enact this failsafe, but they're not doing it. And, and and so there's there's so many levels of and this is what what's really got me about and got me involved in all of this is just my god this is so crazy why is this happening yeah, yeah it's just so fueled by profits like yeah. the fact that I remember when I first joined you stop and reading uh, something about that pharmaceutical companies are more likely to research male patent baldness than HIV medication for children because it's more profitable to them and I just remember thinking that is bizarre. How strange. What a bizarre concept. I think, as we mentioned before, HIV AIDS disproportionately affects young people. And so as young people, we would be really passionate about finding solutions to the, to the problem for us. And equally, young people are disproportionately affected by financial problems because we've grown up in the not best economy. So to us, it makes sense to invest in those kind of research and development. But if you are a big company driven by money, of course, you're not going to be be interested in investing in. Yeah, it's like 52% of children still living with HIV worldwide don't have access to to medication, which is because it's not a not a profitable industry. And it's so crazy. I mean, I keep saying this, and it's somewhat controversial in some situations. But we have got two global pandemics right now. One, which has been around for a while, which is called HIV AIDS. The other one, COVID, COVID-19. And what really like, really frustrates me is that if HIV AIDS had affected rich middle-class white people in the way that COVID has, we would have a cure for HIV. However, because HIV affects generally men who have sex with men, sex workers, and, uh, you know, people of color from sub-Saharan Africa, oh, look, we're still 30, 40 years later without a cure. Uh, and yet every government in the world is trying to trying to find a cure for COVID because, oh, look, it's it's affecting them um, and their generation and that population and their voters. Well, I think what constantly keeps coming up for me is the idea that we're living in, in a lottery and that if certain issues affect you, then depending on who you are, you're more likely to get help for things. So... My question would be, how do we boycott that lottery? And how do we ensure that people have access to the medicine that they need? Or have I basically just asked how to solve the AIDS crisis? <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe if we had the answer to that, we, uh, we wouldn't need Youth Stop AIDS anymore. <laughs> what do Youth Stop AIDS do in your activism to, to lobby for access to medicine so we have obviously our um our two main campaigns that run alongside each other we spoke about it ain't over before and then we have our missing medicines campaign which is obviously all focused around 
better access to medication, both for HIV and also for, for many other diseases uh, in, in general. We've had a few campaigns that we've, we've launched over the last few years. A really big one being last year, we, we launched a campaign called the People's Prescription, basically calling on the government to change the current unfair system. Um, now, Labour did actually announce a, a policy last year that, that would do that, which was Medicines for the Many. I don't know if you remember that being um, launched, I think, in October last year, Corbyn launched that policy, which was a really huge kind of campaign win for us. We'd been working on the people's prescription with lots of different other global health charities, obviously Stop AIDS, which hosts us and Just Treatment, other other organizations like that worked really closely together on the people's prescription, which was basically working on prioritizing people, not profits. It was a, a huge campaign win for, for Labour to, to introduce that policy. Missing Medicines is something that's quite interesting because it's something that's can be a little bit confusing sometimes, but when you talk about it and talk about the stats, everyone gets really passionate about it. And we've had some really great campaigns that have come out from from the Missing Medicines campaign. It's a really great opportunity for some big um, stunts, which everyone loves doing. Um, I think there was one, I don't know if you were involved with it, Alex, it was before I joined you, Stopades, I think, where they, they did a campaign outside a big pharmaceutical company with a, the patent pool. Do you remember that? And they did a, a huge like blow up pool party outside um, outside a pharmaceutical company. Um, it's just yeah, our missing medicines campaigns are a really great opportunities to get get quite quite creative with your stunts, which I quite like as well. Um, it's something that why I'm quite passionate about the the cause, and it's yeah, quite quite exciting to be a part of it. I think just generally, there, there's so many different policies that can almost almost see as radical. Um, this idea of creating a national pharmaceutical organization, which basically is a nationally, uh, you know, state-owned pharma company that we could do run all this R&D through and then, funny enough, not have to pay for it twice. You know, these really simple things that could happen um, within the UK to actually drive this forward, which, are, which um, unfortunately are seen as radical policies, but I see them as decent policies. And, and, and I think comes to what are we doing and how can we do it young people have a have power we have a voice and i think it's even more so over the last decade as basically everyone has become slightly politically active now because well the world's mad and so really it's the power of um young people coming together and being and being able to shout in one voice with one script and actually being able to put pressure on on people in power that may ignore a couple of us on our own but when we come together as a group uh, and organize we are able to create real meaningful change and that's just you know that that's shown in, in, in a lot of the work we've done over the years we have pushed through some really strong campaign wins when we've come together we've created a core ask we've been clear in our message and we've found the right people to talk to uh, and, and so there's some really proud moments over the last couple over the last of a decade or well, since 2003 when we, we started um where we've been able to really harness the voice of young people and make people in power listen the missing medicines campaign is quite relevant to the current covid crisis and many people are talking about um it's great that we might soon have a covid vaccine but some countries will have easier access to it than others and it will be disproportionately rolled out what can we do to ensure everyone has equal access to a covid vaccine oh big question um i think i'm well we have launched a few campaigns through through the the covid pandemic that's been going on in terms of access to a vaccine I actually haven't personally worked that closely with it. I know a few big charities are doing like a lot of campaigning work towards it. Unfortunately, it's probably going to come down to money again, which is like we keep talking about this this life lottery. 
I don't know, uh, Alex, what do you think? I suppose the context that we've been looking at it in is is around um, people living with H- young people living with HIV and COVID, and we've got a lot of concerns around access to. And I'm, I'm doing a totally politician's answer. Sorry, Josh. We're really concerned with people and their 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 ability to access the services and support they require, especially in countries where there's still a lot more stigma. Uh, and, and there are still a lot of countries that stigmatize people living with HIV so much more than the UK. Now there is still stigma in this country. Do not get me wrong, but you know, hearing heartbreaking stories of you know women getting really sick and then not going to the doctors to get tested because if they find out, then they'll be stigmatized against. And you know, uh, where we've got in the COVID nineteen crisis, all of a sudden. And, you know, women living with HIV in, in, in countries in sub-Saharan Africa um, that would normally go to a clinic further away because they would probably know someone at the local clinic and therefore be stigmatized, aren't able to go to that further clinic. So they're, a- they're, they're risking being virally outed. And so there's just so many, many problems that, that have arisen from COVID when it comes to people living with HIV because it is the other global pandemic which is still active and has been for a long time. And so what, what we're looking at at the moment is focusing on how we can support those people and how we can make sure that we're putting pressure on governments and organisations to support people living with HIV who, because of COVID and because of lockdowns, and co-infection is quite a terrifying thought as well for someone who's not who's not very suppressed and has a, a compromised immune system, they get COVID, there's going to be some serious issues. And so we're just really trying to make sure that we are keeping the pressure on and keeping going, hey, people living with HIV are really at risk here too. That's not to say that everyone is. I mean, I'm, I've got um, a suppressed viral load, so I'm actually, um, my immune system's fine, so I'm okay, but people's immune aren't. There's, there's a problem there. Uh, and so, yeah, when it comes to the global access to COVID, COVID vaccines, well, there's going to be a problem. And I think we need to make sure that, that everyone who is able to push forward an equitable agenda should be doing so. And we should be doing that as one uh, with one singular voice, which I think we are we are part of a couple of coalitions that are doing that. But I think that there's, there's some really important considerations around people living with HIV and the impact that COVID's had on them. I think it's really important that the COVID pandemic doesn't overshadow the HIV pandemic, but in, instead reminds us that We've got so much inequality to deal with and that these issues are very much still around and present and still affect people's lives. Um, And you mentioned stigmatisation affecting people's access to services. What are some of the misconceptions and stigmatisations that that exist that need to be busted in order for people to have basic access to services. So when it comes to stigma, there's varying levels of stigma when you look at different communities uh, and different countries. I think uh, within the UK, uh, access to confidential services are, are quite easy to get hold of. Whether or not there's specialist services that can really support you is another issue. But uh, when it comes to confidentiality, I think we have got a, we have a strong healthcare system in the, in the United Kingdom, and therefore it's not so... So terrifying. Where we are talking, I think it was, um, we've recently done some video interviews with people and there was a lady, I think in Kenya, who was saying that, that there was some problem with outing in local clinics or uh, just by familiarity of people going into clinics. And there is still a lot of stigma around HIV AIDS in a lot of the countries of sub-Saharan Africa. And I, mean, I won't be able to get into, into the detailed intricacies of HIV stigma in different parts of, of Africa, but there are definitely some, some real very entrenched issues a lot to do with religion um and catholicism in a lot of the countries and oh whoops colonialism and what did we well, what we did to the countries oops and and so it is blocking people from a getting tested and b getting treated uh, and that's 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 before and after covid and, and during you know it, it's 
it's a scary time and in, in, especially in rural communities where everyone knows each other um, there's a lot of misconceptions and there's been some terrible stories of you know of, of people being told that if they have sex with a virgin they could they get cured and things like that and some terrible stuff is happening especially with women uh, living with HIV uh, there's there's some really really problematic stories out there at the moment I, I, and so that's that's what's really interesting around so for example um, South Africa um, has the largest state funded HIV program in the world they are also the country with the highest level of prevalence of HIV in the world but it's it's not for want of trying, I suppose, is the way to put it. You know, they've got a lot of medication there, but it's such a complex, there's so much complex societal and historic stigma that accessing that treatment is rare, it can be as as difficult as if it wasn't there at all. And the problem with stigma as well is that it, it very easily gets entrenched and passed on. So how how do we tackle this stigma? What What tools do we have and ways of reframing the narrative and making sure that people actually have the facts about HIV AIDS. Yeah. Yeah, I think you just said it just then, making sure people have the facts. That's the issue. Even here in the UK, the amount of people that I speak to that don't know about U equals U, you know, undetectable equals untransmittable is is kind of crazy. You know, there's still so much misinformation, even just here in the UK. So it all just become comes down to talking about it. And that's why I think that campaigning, a lot of people always think that to be involved in a movement like You Stop AIDS or to be a campaigner or an activist, it's, you've got to be doing big, big things. But it can just be small things, just bringing U equals U into conversation, you know, it, educating people about U equals U. Little, little actions like that can really help to reduce stigma in such a huge way. It's really interesting. So I, I was diagnosed with HIV in 2014, and that was before the advent of PrEP. Um, so pre-exposure prophylaxis, the drug you can take to stop yourself from getting HIV. Uh, and so that, uh, I, I know uh, it's been six years now. I've been in six and a half years. I've been living with HIV now. And my God, has it changed in six and a half years? I mean, back in 2014, you know, I was being refused dates. People that used to, used to ask me out no longer wanted to ask me out anymore. I was really closed about my status for a long time. Um, you know, I ended up having a battle with Channel 4 because I went on that terrible reality TV show, uh, First Dates. They tried to force me to disclose my status. It was all massive. And that was sort of 2014, 2015. Fast forward to 2020. And, I, you know, I live openly with HIV in, in Norwich, in Norfolk, one of the most rural counties in the UK. And I don't fear, I don't fear things in any way near the way I did before. And this sort of, the fear of rejection is so terrifying when it comes to HIV, not only for partners, but from family and friends uh, and so there has been so much change it's been wonderful to see but there's still a long way to go and as Josie said there's so many people that don't really know what U equals U means and, and that but it's but because there's so many more tools in our our toolkit now and you know we've got a lot of uh, a lot more weapons in our in our bank and when it comes to being able to fight HIV that it's no longer that oh my god this is so terrifying because often when you tell someone you're HIV positive it's not like telling someone you have diabetes or cancer you know when you tell someone that's how can i support you but when you tell someone you've got hiv what does that mean to me and, and that's always something that i found that really threw me was people go oh god um can i share a glass with you can i can, you know because there was some crazy research recently that said that something like 50 like 25 percent of, of people think that by sitting on the toilet seat after someone with hiv it puts you at risk of contracting hiv it's like oh my lord what that's so stupid and so there is still so many misconceptions and it's just the I think it's just important that everyone who is in the know who is educated who knows what they're talking about to just have those courageous conversations whenever possible 
it's really courageous of you to be talking so candidly about it. And I think there's a bit of a catch-22 in, in the, the sense that for people to overcome these misconceptions and, and stigmas, people need to hear from HIV positive people to tell them that I am just like you. I just, I just mm. have, you know, HIV. But equally, for those people to come forward, we need to be living in a culture where it's not a problem for them to come forward. So I guess mm. there's definitely societal education that needs to be taking place. And absolutely, maybe it would be, maybe it would be nice if people at school learnt about HIV. Oh my yeah. <laughs> Don't get excited on this. Yeah, I could talk to you about SRE for a long time. I think, yeah, it's 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 crazy to me that that's still not a conversation that's being had at a younger point. I think, um, again, it's because you know HIV generally happens through the S word, sex, and I, we're just way really British. And the moment that gets involved, the fact is, you manage HIV like you manage diabetes. Uh, you know, actually, diabetes is actually more of an impact on your life than HIV is. Generally, HIV happens through either sex or intravenous drug use. You, know, you get diabetes through eating a lot of sugar or through hereditary problems. Everyone's okay to talk about diabetes, but yet HIV, because the S word's involved, people get really British about it. And also, all of a sudden, it's people cast and um, imagine in their minds how you got it. And, uh, you know, you suddenly become this terrible person. It takes one time to get HIV. You don't know how that person got it and why And why should you? The fact is, is that that person is a normal human being living a life. And I think, you know, you, you're right when you said, Justin, that the, the, the only way to get more people to feel safe to be out living with HIV is by talking about it. And so I started talking about living with HIV. God, I think it was about 2015 I did my first sort of public this is, I am Alex and I'm HIV positive and I've been on all the different news channels and I've been in lots of papers and stuff and it's been amazing. But since then, the amount of my friends or people that have messaged me on social media and said, because of you, I've now come, I'm now open about my status. And that means so much to me and I have a little tear every single time. But that's because I, I want to create a society in which it's okay to talk about this. And sometimes some people get a bit disarmed when I come out with it so openly. I'm HIV positive. I, I will slip it into conversation and people go, oh, first. But actually... You have to normalise those conversations. Without normalising it, it's never going to go anywhere. Definitely. And I think as well, you mentioned that we don't want to talk about sex because then that's, you know, we don't do that as British people. But with diabetes, we it's not that we don't talk about sugar in case children are then going to go off and eat loads of sugar and get <laughs> diabetes. But this idea that sex is dangerous, I think that only worsens the problem in a way. Absolutely. 100%. And even just like testing, like sexual health testing is, is so taboo. It's mm. just not something that is spoken about, you know, you sh people should be getting sexual health tests, just like you go to the doctors or get your eyes test. And it's, it's still something that is so weird for people to talk about, which I always just find so, so bizarre. It's yeah, it's it's strange. So friends and family of mine have gone. Oh my god, I've just realised I've been supporting you through talking about living with HIV. I don't think I've ever had an HIV test. And you're like, <laughs> ah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's like it's not. So it's not a normal part of testing for someone who's not MSM. So so someone a man who who normally has sex with men. It's not. I mean, Georgia, you probably can talk about that more than I can. But you know, it, it generally. The conversation is very different and the context is very different, which is, well, yeah. I'm a woman, I'm not going to have it. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Whenever I've gone to get a sexual health test, it's always, HIV has always been very brushed over, which I always think is quite okay. interesting. There's double standards as well, because, for example, like if you want to drive a car, you need to pass your driving test. If you want to, I don't know, do other things, you need to pass certain tests, but, you know, oh, well, I can have sex safely without getting tested. It's, it's just a completely different concept mm -hmm. and... 
Yeah. And I thought it was quite strange when I went to get a sexual health test, actually, and the woman who was doing my test, we would, we were, got to the bit where she was going to do the HIV test. And she was like, oh, I wouldn't worry about this one. You probably don't have it. And I was like, what an interesting thing to say. How do you know? Whereas my experience was the opposite when I was 17 and I went, I went to hospital and she went, because you're gay, you need to consider this will probably come back positive. I was 17. And I, and I got told at 17 that, that I got given a leaflet on dealing with HIV before she'd even taken the blood out of my arm. Yeah. And so that's mad for me to hear you go, oh, it's all right, you're going to be fine. But with me, it was, you're, you're gay, you've probably got HIV. It's misconceptions and it's a lack of education. And mm. I guess yeah. the government's not, not just failing to fund HIV treatment and support, but it's also failing to teach us about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We, they used to be so much more rings. Even under our, our favourite ex-Prime Minister, Tessie May, there was still so much ring-fenced budget for HIV-AIDS, and it's just slowly getting shrunk and getting subsumed. And, you know, this big hoo-ha around PrEP, um, pre-exposure purple access, and, and, and it was a case of, well, the N- NHS England were butting it to Public Health England saying, you should pay for it. No, you should pay for it. No, you should pay for it. It's a preventative drug rather than a treatment drug. And that's what took us so long to get it was because basically everyone's just shirking responsibility because the government has cut every budget so much now that there's so little to go around um, that they have to manage so many competing agendas. But then I don't know if you ever saw there was an awful article, um, a headline in that, I think it was the Express or the Mail, which was basically uh, HIV users go up, um, stop life-saving cancer drugs for lifestyle drug. And basically the NHS had released this ridiculously homophobic, uh, judgmental press release saying that, well, we've had to to set down consideration of a cancer drug because HIV campaigners have forced our hand on it, basically, for a lifestyle drug. And it's like, well, you know, if condoms worked, we probably would have fixed the problem by now. They're not working, so we need something else. And, it, it, you know, it's this idea of, yeah, double standards and, and somewhat amount of you know, a stigma around sex and under, uh, you know, underwritten very much by, by, by a certain amount of homophobia when it comes to MSM. You mentioned funding and funding is key to everything, really. Why is it important that the funding is not only there, but that it's sustainable? Because, because it ain't over. Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a comeback, like, ingrained in my brain because we're so close to beating it. I, the fact of the matter is, so we have the, you know, the 90-90-90, we need to get 90% of people tested, 90% of those on medication, 90% of those virally suppressed. If we reach that, we can end HIV AIDS in our lifetime. We can stop yeah. it in its tracks. And so if we stop new infections then I could be one of the last people to ever be infected with HIV. That's so exciting. So if we kept it up, if we funded it properly, we effectively short-circuited it and stopped it from, from travelling, very much like the government's current COVID agenda. If we, if we were able to do that for HIV and, get, and stop new infections, we could stop HIV. And no one else would have to die from AIDS-related illnesses. We have the medication to stop it from spreading. Um, yes, we don't have a cure, but we've got a way to stop other people from, from contracting it. If everyone in the world was on, on treatment or people that were at risk were on PrEP, we could stop HIV. Uh, so, uh, but that just requires funding. Um, and we could eradicate HIV in our lifetime. Mm. And I think that is one of the most frustrating and also like in some ways exciting part of this campaign is that it's... It could happen. We could see it happen. And yeah, 2030 is not that far away. To me, that sounds like a very exciting and 
positive call to arms for people. So how can people take action? Where can we find out more information? How can we get involved with Youth Stop AIDS? This is your chance to plug. So Youth Stop AIDS is a, is a big old mixture. If you're at university, hopefully we've already got a group set up at your university. I think we've currently got between 10 and 15 university groups set up. Obviously, we're adapting the way we campaign this year, but reach out and hopefully we already have a group set up at your university. If we don't, you can set one up because we always want new group leaders and new groups and we want to grow as much as we can as a, as a network. If you're not a university, we have some groups that are non-uni related. So we have a group here in London. There's one in Manchester, I think, that are groups but also loads of individual campaigners all around the country. Um, so people not based in big cities who still want to get involved in campaign. COVID has actually been, there's been one positive from COVID for our campaign network is that we've started doing nice um, network Zoom calls, which is quite fun. Um, if you want to get in touch and just come along to one of our Zoom calls, you'll get to meet everyone, hear a bit more about what we're doing and just find out even more that we're a fun network to be a part of. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it, it, we're, we're really keen to grow our network as much as possible as we come towards that 2030 marker. Because as I said, the more of us that are shouting, the better. And it's, as Judy said, it's great fun. If you're at university, it's a really good thing to be part of if you're at uni. Uh, you can create a group. So we have wonderful team who support us at Restless Development, the International Development Agency, um, focused on young people. They they have a, a wonderful team of people who, who can help you set up a group. Um, the wonderful Harry or her team will be able to help you with that and or join one of our other groups and and just get involved and find out what we're about. We're a lovely group of people. We, we get, we're very passionate, but we don't bite. <laughs> and we have Twitters and Instagrams and Facebook. So come join all the groups, follow us and, and keep up to date on what we're getting up to. So yeah, so if you want to follow us on uh, Instagram, it's youthstopaids underscore UK and same on Twitter. There we go. I think there's no excuse now not to get involved. Exactly. Um, no, we've given but, you all of the options. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to chat. No worries. No, thank you. Great. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The World Made Easy. For more information, follow the links in the show notes. For more podcasts from SOAS Radio, visit soasradio.org. Thanks for listening and see you next time for another episode of The World Made Easy.